podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. All right, welcome back to the TMBA pod. If I sound a bit subdued, it's because today's the last day of my vacation, boss man. Oh, poor you. I know, very sad. Uh, but the exciting news, headed back to Austin. We got a lot of exciting projects on the table for September. So Woo-hoo. looking forward to it, looking forward to the show. We got a lot of good guests coming on. We've got a lot of wonderful listener feedback. In fact, I want to thank everybody who from last week's episode emailed me, Dan, at tropicalmba.com and sent us voice messages about their COVID stories and some of their feedback on our opinions on last week's show. They've been thoughtful, respectful, moving, in some cases hilarious, and we will be playing some towards the end of the show. Any quick news at the top here, Bossman, before we jump into uh, today's episode? Just get my, uh, get my trailer ready for you to spend the night in my backyard again. <laughs> <laughs> of course look there's nothing that's going to get me moving around like the prospect of free rent hopefully a concept we can work into today's topic so one of the things i want to do ian is bring the listeners into an update and a little bit of inside baseball on a project that we've got going on and we mentioned a few weeks back it's a forthcoming book on a theory we've been testing out with the listeners of this show in real time over the past decade, and it's called, of course, The 1,000-Day Principle. And I want to talk about one of the chapter ideas in the hopes that some listeners listening today will weigh in and give us their feedback so that we can better express what some of the tenets of this community are and what this wealth journey is all about. Because fundamentally for me, boss man, The 1,000-Day Principle is an attempt to express what was previously to me a somewhat illegible path towards wealth and personal freedom. And I think that that's what essentially has resonated with the original idea of the thousand day principle, which is so many people that have been down that wealth journey have turned around and said, hey, I recognize that. I felt that. I went through those experiences and that rings true to me. So Ian, before we proceed, I just want to define the thousand day principle. It essentially states that In order to reproduce your professional salary from a business that you own yourself, that'll take three years of full-time effort. And the reason this is more broadly interesting and what we're going to talk about today is that this is essentially, aside from the apprentice phase, which is where you learn about all this stuff and you start to make moves towards, say, day one, this phase, this 1,000 days, is fundamentally the first step on what we're seeing as a relatively speaking, reliable path towards personal wealth and personal freedom. And what we want to do today is compare it, and I think this is going to be important in the book and why I want to bring it up on the podcast, is compare it to some other dominant wealth trajectories. And today we're just going to choose three. But if you as the listener, something resonates with you or that there's something positive about other wealth trajectories that the thousand day principle thinking say could learn from or other wealth trajectories that you found out to be bunk or incorrect or importantly misleading. Those are all things that I think would be worth addressing in this chapter of the book. Dan, I think the idea here is that the thousand day career pattern for entrepreneurs is evolving basically. And it's evolving because other models are broken. The ways that past generations have uh, traditionally earned a living is fundamentally broken in a lot of ways. These institutions are crumbling, and we're having to find new ways forward. That's true. And also finding ways to reinterpret the past. So, you know, one of the things you can do once you're equipped with this thousand day principle or thousand day thinking. You can go back and look at other wealth strategies and you can ask yourself, well, where were their thousand days? Because I think any good wealth strategy basically brings three elements to the table. It brings a mindset element, it brings strategic elements, and it brings, importantly, timing elements. 
one of the things I'm always curious about is when you hear things like mindsets and strategies from wealthy people about how to get wealthy, one of the things that always like perks up in my mind, Ian, is, well, how much time is it going to take? Because right now, I'm broke. Dan, another thing that's really important in these strategies, for me at least, is relevance in time. Meaning like, will this strategy work given it's 2020? Things that worked 50 years ago don't necessarily work now. And things that work now probably won't work 50 years from now. So you have to adapt to the times. You have to figure out what's working now and what's going to work through your lifetime. And I think it's quite possible because we've already seen it happen that how people start their trajectory, how people start their thousand days might be drastically different 20 years from now. But one of the things that's really important for me and why I wanted to do this episode and sort of cross-check the 1,000-day thinking with other brands of thinking and sort of reach out to the listeners and see what sort of alternative strategies might be compelling to them is that when you accept these paths, the potential payoff could be, for some strategies, three years. There could be intermediate steps after one. But a lot of these strategies, we're talking 5, 10, 15, 25, 35 years and they're non-falsifiable in the short term. In other words, you're not going to get feedback every day about whether or not you chose the right path. And that's why I think really digging in and asking yourself what's good, bad, suspect about different strategies is a really critical part of this because part of the difficulty with accepting 1,000-day thinking is that it essentially suggests that you're going to need to take a step back, go into something of a pain cave and something of a blindness and uncertainty in order to ultimately emerge way ahead. And so it does have this kind of question marky kind of vibe to it, whereas a lot of competing strategies that we'll get into today have some more clarity to them. And that's part of the reason why I would not only want to do the comparison, but flesh out what these thousand days can and do look like on repeated attempts. Because I think it's partially legibility that makes a theory powerful. And so that first approach, Bossman, and again, today we're going to cover three, we're going to call the traditional route. And probably for the final book copy, I'll come up with a snappier title. But the traditional route essentially suggests that if you get a good college education, that will sort of beget you a high-earning job that is secure and relatively stable. If you roll out this traditional route over the course of, you know, typically it's talked about two to three to four decades, that you'll be able to not only live a good lifestyle throughout those decades, but that you'll be able to save enough through traditional retirement vehicles like managed savings accounts, home ownership, sensible hedging in bonds, <laughs> financial managers, and so on, that by the time you reach you know, your 60s, or if you're sharp, maybe your late 50s or mid 50s, you'll be able to have a great deal of flexibility in terms of how you spend the remaining years of your life. Ooh, Dan, you mentioned the word flexibility. Here I am, Nearly 40 years old, had a little spill on my dirt bike the other day in the uh, Colorado <laughs> mountains, and I am still feeling the effects on my ankle. So I can only imagine 10 years from now what my flexibility level is going to be like and how I'm going to be able to enjoy life if I'm already starting to feel like this. Gosh, man, if you would have asked me what life was going to be like at 40 when I was like 18, I would have been like, that's old man territory. <laughs> But this is more like the 10,000-day principle, right? 30 years, what life is going to be like. And the interesting thing, I guess, about this concept for me is uh, this is the one that most of our parents did. Go to school, and school back then was pretty cheap. And the trajectories were getting to be known, and they were stable, and companies had pensions and healthcare and all that good stuff. And it worked out great. I think for a lot of boomers, their regrets aside, maybe from in terms of what they wanted to do with their lives versus what they did do, I think a lot of them are in financially pretty sound places. 
I think you did what you were told and it, and it worked out. We're starting to see, obviously, cracks in that model. I think there's very few things that you can go to school for, traditional education, university, and, and have a clear trajectory for the next 30 or 40 years. I would almost venture to say, Dan, that getting an associate's degree or some kind of accreditation, like even say like welding or something like that, might be just as beneficial. One of the interesting things about the trades that people don't bring up very often is that you have an opportunity to have a really strong arbitrage between your living expenses and your earning. Think about traditional jobs, say in the financial sector, you typically have to live a very expensive lifestyle to have access to that sort of earning. Well, that's actually why I brought up welding. I know a guy here in Austin that's an offshore welder. He spends like six months out at sea at a time, kind of gets to pick and choose his jobs, and then he comes home and he drives his convertible Porsche. He lives very well, and he doesn't work that much, but he does have one of these, I'd say, kind of entrepreneurial jobs. Well, I'll say this about you know what I see as the traditional route. I mean, obviously, we could have the a whole episode about the potential problems with how much of a loan you can take to get how much of a degree in America right now and what actually the ROI on that is going to be. Yeah. I'm not so sure I want to go down that route right now. I mean, there are plenty of careers out there where you have high earning potential, where you can affect that earning potential, where you can move around quite a bit. And, you know, if you select wisely, this might not be a bad way to go. And it certainly, although doesn't expose you to the upside that maybe an entrepreneurial path has, or certainly the flexibility. And I would say the non-chronicness, like this idea of like, you know, if you do select this strategy, that you're going to have to be on the stick for decades on end regularly. But you do save yourself from something that I think entrepreneurs can relate to, which is what I would call like existential stress. Or maybe a sense of like responsibility regarding the unknown. Not to suggest that not everybody has unknowns in their lives, but at least when you've selected a strategy of the traditional route, you have concepts around your work, your savings, your progression towards wealth that are relatively clear. Whether or not they're accurate or not might be another story, and certainly will be subjected to some luck. But this idea that you can put those issues to bed more or less on a daily basis, I think is a great benefit of the traditional route for a lot of personality types, for a lot of people. Of course, there are downsides for outsourcing that responsibility, which we've called on this show, like say the turkey problem, you know, if you don't take responsibility for how you're earning income, if you like outsource it to somebody else, you're going to be the last one to know when that process breaks down. Whereas in, in an entrepreneurial strategy, you typically have a one-to-one relationship with that income. And the downside of that is, of course, stress and uncertainty. The upside is you're doing insider trading if you own your own asset. The idea, though, of this career, Dan, and that you're not going to have worries, I think that could be a thing of the past. I see most people with careers these days in traditional jobs having almost as many worries as I have. I mean, there are different types of worries, but certainly they're ones of stability. Certainly they keep them up at night. Certainly their work doesn't always turn off at 5 p.m. And I think that certainly there's there's other downsides too. You know, one of the things that I've been thinking about lately now that I have a young child is just the amount of time that I get to spend with him and around home and some of the things that I get to see. A couple that with like the amazing vacations and the time that we get to spend out of this country when we're allowed to, and traveling and doing all the cool things that we do at 3 p.m. on a Wednesday. If you look at it, the equation with, with stress, for me at least, is offset. So it's like, yeah, I have a lot more responsibility. I have a lot more stress. I also have a lot more fun. It's in line with this kind of reflection I've been doing because, you know, in our business recently, we've selected to hire more people and do things that are much more ambitious. And we've talked about this over the years where is there really a different amount of stress between managing 15 people and managing three or managing zero or managing a career? And I think it's like an open question. It's like, 
we speak with a lot of entrepreneurs who are like, I don't like managing people. I want to keep it simple. I want to keep it to this level. It's like they're kind of dealing with all the same amounts of stress that someone with a job or someone with 15 or 50 employees is dealing with. It's just how they're framing it that's different, you know? And then ultimately what responsibility they're willing to take on. I don't know. Like, I do think it's like an active and open question. There's certainly part of me that thinks like what you're suggesting that indeed like we're all under these kinds of stresses anyway. So why not choose the path with the outsized outcomes? Yeah. I think different people handle stresses differently too. You know, some people, they just don't want to deal with the the type of stress that entrepreneurship brings. But I'll tell you, I think it's like a learned skill. 100%. And a way to, to manage your stress. I don't think that you necessarily need to be built for it or born for it Yeah, per se. All right. So the first strategy then is the traditional route. And again, what we're trying to do is solicit ideas from the listenership because I don't think it makes sense to say, hey, this is all bad. I think it makes sense for us as people who's working on making this path legible to be as what we used to call it back in university, we used to call it giving it a beneficial reading. That way, when you're weighing pros and cons and looking at different strategies, it challenges you and it brings the best out in competing theories. And our competing theory relative to the traditional route would suggest in terms of at least in education and jobs that you should focus on learning while you earn, aka apprenticeship, and specifically learning the skills of growing and sustaining small businesses that provide for you and your family in ways that you define long term. All right, Ian, so let's get moving on to our second strategy. Again, these are strategies for pursuing wealth. And this one is called the savings savior, also known as financial independence or retire early. They say that the best way to achieve wealth is to get a high paying job, ideally, also a high paying, low stress job, even more ideally, which is even more difficult to do, I would say to pay down those student loans that that expensive education got you and to, you know, buy a lot less house, pay off your cars, acquire no debt, essentially save as much money as you can, eventually build up enough money in your retirement accounts through a program of radical savings and dropping it to the bottom line. There's an opportunity for people that make good money and live in secondary or tertiary cities to potentially retire as early as their early 30s or mid 30s if they follow a very, very frugal fire savings plan. Now, I got to say, Ian, one of the reasons I want to bring up fire in our book and talk deeply about it is that I love these ideas. I think that one of the great things about personal finances is that you can experience the benefits of entrepreneurship right away. Because a lot of a thousand day principle style thinking suggests you have to apprentice and learn this complex know-how of entrepreneurship, and then you need to apply it to uncertainty and eventually try to get value, turning it into money, turning it into your wallet, and it becomes this complicated stew of skills and uncertainty. Whereas when you look at things like FIRE and you say, fundamentally, what any good financial plan does is drop profit to the bottom line. Yeah. Eventually, at some point. And that can get complicated when you get into entrepreneurship. But at least when you look at your own wallet, you ask yourself, well, if I'm going to spend my whole year working, how much of this am I going to be able to drop to the bottom line? And how much time is it going to buy me in the future? And for me personally, that's a very empowering feeling. And it's a constant. It like should always be there. So whether you choose the traditional path or the entrepreneurship path, you can never really go wrong with sprinkling in a little bit of financial independence, retire early. And that's why I love, love exploring these ideas, how to save money, how to be smarter. Where I think this theory can go awry is when it presents itself really as the final answer. I would consider, you know, fire to be a necessary step to becoming wealthy, but not a sufficient element to becoming wealthy because at the end of the day, it really comes down to earning. I mean, that is the big question mark that you need to solve. And so within the FIRE community, 
This idea that you're going to sustain a potentially high-stress career that's based around a major city, that you're going to sustain it for decades on decades, that you're going to compromise your lifestyle in the meantime, because in part, a lot of people have to live quite hamstrung because they spend all their time focusing on the first few steps of you know, frugality and expenses and really forget about the most important side of the balance sheet, which is the income. I feel like, Dan, we've lived a lot of this life, especially when we were starting our business. We both had our days when we got out of debt oh, yeah. and celebrated that. We both lived super below our means so we could invest in our business. That was the vehicle. And I think that's one of the interesting things about this concept is that while we were saving, while we were living frugally, we we're investing both our time and our money into the asset of the future. Whereas uh, with this traditional FIRE movement, you're investing your time in something that isn't your future, right? You're investing in this career that you're eventually going to end. Yes. And you're investing your money in a vehicle that's not necessarily controlled by you, which historically has done some great things for, uh, for people and continues to do some great things. By the way, did you see that video I sent you? Yeah. Of the conjoining twins. There are these comedians on uh, YouTube and on their shirts, one says economy and one says the stock market. Yeah. And the guy in the stock market is like acting out of control and irrationally in the, in the guy with the economy written on his shirts all beat up and bruised. It is a sort of a weird setup to the strategy, which is like, I am going to like set my life up so that I have to do what I'm doing for as short as humanly possible. You know, and there are a lot of those sort of ascetic qualities to the fire lifestyle that don't appeal to me particularly. You know, don't go to the good grocery store, like grow that stuff yourself or like don't hire a plumber, like learn to fix it and don't buy a car, you know, like ride a bike and like don't travel anywhere because like you might have to work for two years longer in order to pay for that trip. And there's this like very much like this ascetic quality that in some ways like takes on all these like non-profound problems. I'm sorry to say it, but it's a relatively easy problem to solve, like to figure out how to fix a pipe in your house versus like paying a plumber. So like if you have the ingenuity to solve that problem, might you challenge yourself a bit and say, well, what if I took all that problem solving energy that I'm like spending on biking and gardening and plumbing and avoiding vacations and instead focus it on more profound problems, which are less legible and start to figure out how to generate value in the world for a lot of more people than myself and then harvest a small percentage of it so that I can ultimately have wealth. I'm tempted to say that there's a kind of a like an engineering mindset that can often be very attracted and dogmatic about fire principles because there's this idea that you know life is very discreet and it can be put on a spreadsheet and I'll get my 4% back and the stock market always goes this direction and I don't think that those things are a bad foundation actually for a wealth strategy but I think you'd be much better off if you sort of opened up the afterburners and the self-challenge a little bit and used that free time you want so badly to focus on a skill set called entrepreneurship. So in contrast, the 1,000-day the principle and strategy here would suggest that, of course, you need to get your expenses sorted and thinking about investing early on. But the reality is, is that making money with money is incredibly hard and largely inefficient, especially when you have, say, less than a million bucks in cash. So why not, instead of outsourcing that whole process, solve the simple problems of being prudent and saving a lot, and then get yourself focused on the more complex and valuable problems of increasing your income. Final idea here, Dan, for me is, I actually have a friend that's like, lives the fire life. Me and him, we go back and forth all the time. It's kind of fun to get each other's perspective on the different styles of investing, you know. He's always like teasing me about some of his like stocks that are just going through the roof. And I'm always like showing him pictures of my car and I'm like here here's what I invested in, you know, <laughs> this 30-year-old car. And I do think they're both valid approaches. But what I will say about my style of investing versus his style of investing is 
his style of investing is completely out of his hands. And also, his style of investing lives on his computer. He can't touch it. He can't feel it. He can't visit it. He will never see a growth curve that goes up and to the right like a hockey stick. Or at least historically speaking, that's never happened. It's also very difficult to glean information from it that would then benefit the next thing. I mean, you know, when you're outsourcing investments, there's two realities that I think people don't talk about very much, and I'll just bring them up for food for thought. Is that number one, just sit down with a calculator and a spreadsheet and figure out even if you kicked ass as an investor for 10 years or whatever, you know, when I talk to people who are like passionate about investing, especially when they have like small amounts of capital, and by small amounts of capital, I mean maybe anything less than a million liquid, they're risking a lot to have basically what are mediocre returns relative to any small business you can imagine. And even in the best cases, you wouldn't achieve what you could achieve with a small business, you know, growing it, say, 100% year over year over year. And I talk about the magic of compounding. Well, there you go. That's right. And I think I'll point out one other thing that's different between me and my friend. And I think part of the reason why he's attracted to his strategy and why I'm attracted to mine, he is scared to death to go back to work at some point. It is the one thing that he fears the most. And for me, that's just not the case. I'm actually excited to go back to work because I have, I'd say, a, a decent amount of skills. And I'm interested in learning new skills. And I excel in that type of situation. So I think that it's just worth noting, you know? Well, one of the things you can do is like talk to older people. And I've met a lot of people that did fire, and I've met a lot of people that have done like good career mixed with fire. And one of the common concerns they have at the end of their life is how long they're going to live, which is a really, really strange concern, right? The idea that like you're basically worried about like outliving your principal. And you look at like the most successful members of the fire community, they're all essentially using their time and their savings to generate cash flow assets. Again, the critique that I brought to the first, which is like, if you're going to end up at entrepreneurship and small cash asset generation, why don't you just start there? Like why go through a 10 to 20 year detour if you can start out on the right path? A hedge, right? Hedge, but at least be open to the fact that at some point, you're going to have a lot better results if you take control of these investments. I mean, the easy answer to that question mark in between the two things is take a small amount of that money and start a small business. Give me a second to talk about today's sponsor, Travis Jamison, smashdigital.com. They're the first people we reach out to whenever we're thinking about improving our rankings or any SEO question, frankly. In fact, recently I reached out to the team at Smash Digital with a 301 SEO project, which wasn't a great fit for them. So they referred me to someone who could help. And I know that's why we use them so many listeners of this pod use the services over at smashdigital.com. Reality is they really know what they're talking about. They've got skin in the game. They use the exact same methods for their clients that they do to rank their own portfolio of profitable businesses. That's right there, practitioners. It's really empowering to deal with experts who are just straight up and honest about what they can and can't do for your rankings and your SEO in general rather than being walked through some cheesy sales process by SEO services built for people who really don't understand the power of SEO or how it applies specifically to their business. So if you want to have Smash Digital in your business's back pocket or just learn more about what they do, check them out over at smashdigital.com. We appreciate the team at Smash for sponsoring the show. So Ian, again, in the book, I currently have a draft list of a lot of these. <laughs> and we just pulled out three for today's episode in the hopes the listeners would weigh in a bit. The final one we're going to talk about today, we're going to call Turn On, Tune In, and Drop Out. This strategy, Ian, shares some common ground with the FIRE movement. It's a little bit of that live like nobody else so you can live like nobody else Dave Ramsey thing. But really, this kind of dropout script 
is sort of like sell your home and live in an RV or go live off the grid in Costa Rica or Lisbon or Thailand, uh, become a perpetual traveler. Some might even call this sort of living on the run boss man, going to where the sun shines the brightest, where you're treated the best, where maybe the current income that you can command is at that sweet spot ratio where you can live an excellent life without necessarily having a great deal of wealth. Certainly concepts we've explored with great detail and respect on this show. There's also kind of this cool idea with this dropout script that you can cut yourself off from a kind of reality, the same kind of reality that generates a lot of stress and ennui, the kind of stresses that we might call, say, the standard American lifestyle, you know, go to work, get the gold watch, eventually, hopefully retire for a few years, and that's the end of it sort of thing. Often, you know, the folks who choose this sort of dropout script are seeking to live by the rules and priorities that they set for themselves and are not imposed upon them by society. You could make a case that I think would be interesting, Ian, that the pricing of homes in Western countries, let's take America as an example, itself, the price of housing is part of this whole societal scheme that's propped up by so many large institutions. And if you took away so many of these institutions that provided so much easy money and that provided the liquidity to provide the loans in the first place, which might be mass savings plans and total employment and all these sorts of central banks, that you know the idea that this abode would be worth that much and would command so much of your then waking hours to pay for the abode is in itself, you could make an argument that that's all some giant sort of perpetual scam or scheme that you yourself don't want to be a part of. I mean, it's a legitimate wealth strategy and people do it all the time. Yeah, this one's a little bit more complicated because it can go so many different directions. So if you decide that what you want to do is uh, you want to live off the grid, you want to live in some kind of low cost solution, well, then it starts to sound a little bit like the fire movement. It's like, well, I'm controlling my expenses. So then the question is, well, did you get a degree to do whatever you're doing remotely, you know, as a high paying skill or a job, or are you forging a different path? Are you starting a business? Are you learning? Is your business growing or are you just sustaining this life on the beach in Costa Rica or Thailand? It has those like important negative potentials that well, you know, you might get comfortable in that particular situation and, you know, your lack of ability to up-level your level of responsibility, the value you create in the world, your business, your skill set, whatever that is, will then pigeonhole you there. And if you've identified what is a very specific situation of freedom, your freedom and financial flexibility might only then exist in that particular setup that could easily change. And COVID has demonstrated that these things do change. Yeah, this is a point that's worth exploring, Dan, which is like, how much does your environment impact your motivation? I've heard it from a lot of different people that it really, really impacts them depending on where they are and the people that they're around. And I can definitely see that. Like through my travels, I can see that a place like Austin, depending on who you're hanging out with, can be like really inspiring. And then you go somewhere like San Francisco and maybe the people there are even more motivated to make money than they are in Austin. Whereas you go somewhere like Thailand and you see a bunch of people that are making money, but how many of those people have eight, nine, ten figure businesses? You know, a lot of people, they can go to Thailand and make a bunch of money, but I wouldn't say it's the majority of people. Well, I wouldn't say it's the majority of people that go anywhere. And that's really the issue is that you have to be able to tap into your own singularity. It's not hard to imagine, for example, someone who's broke, doesn't have a good education that moves to San Francisco and feels really demotivated by all the douchey conversations around them all the time. All of a sudden, you show up to someplace like Thailand where people are going from zero to one all the time, and that can be extremely motivated. Like These people are just like me. I can move forward. So the idea, though, is that that situation is going to change, right? Like That the people you met in that cafe in Saigon in 2014 when everybody was hanging out there... Well, they might not be there in 2017. And do you have the flexibility, 
have you earned the financial freedom to take that next step, whatever it is for you? I think that's an interesting thing. But I think that one of the like the really interesting positive things that this dropout idea taps into, and I've been chewing on this idea of, you know, how important it is for both investing for business and lifestyle purposes, like what your relative buying power is. There is this virtue in the dropout script that you kind of shed social mores and you start to define your own. You might say something like, if you're going to move to a cheap country in Europe, you might say, well, look, I make $5,000 a month, so I don't want to spend more than $1,000. And the fact that the average person in this country makes $500 makes it such that I can sustain that kind of lifestyle. And that ratio of where I'm at is really critical for me because I want to be an investor. I want to be an entrepreneur. And I do think this idea of like relative wealth becomes a critical concept because isn't that at the end of the day what we're seeking? Like wealthy isn't this absolute figure. It's a relative figure to what you can participate in and how much time and freedom you can buy for yourself. Again, probably point to another virtue of dropping out to a degree is this idea of just being able to value your time. And the real X factor, like you pointed out, is, well, what are you going to do with it? And if you're just going to piss it away and go to a bunch of temples and travel around and enjoy the current level that you're at, it might not be sustainable. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with pissing it away, per se, if that's your goal. You just got to be confident in that. You just got to own it, you know? You got to say, hey, what I'm going to do for the next 15, 20 years is make minimum viable and chill out at these temples. I will say this, and this is like something that's happening with all these strategies, is that there is the potential to be blindsided. Like, for example, coronavirus comes and all of a sudden you can't stay in Thailand. <laughs> there is the potential that the market crashes. There is a potential for this and that and this and that. And so, what is your contingency plan? Is it your skill set? Is it your savings? Is it your ability to earn? What might it be that can save you? And, you know, that to me is ultimately, I think, you know, looking at these three options, and we'll be looking at a lot more in the book, Boss Man. And hopefully, based on some of the emails we received from you all today, Dan at tropicalmba.com, very live issue for us is that, you know, you can have developed two sorts of insurance policies. Well, actually, let's say three. I mean, and, you know, we've talked about as many as 10 on this podcast before, and they'll appear in the book. And they, they look like things like that skill of entrepreneurship. You know, Dave Ramsey used to say, your only security is your ability to go out and bring it home. Yeah. And he was talking about the skill set of entrepreneurship, of selling, of product, of putting a price on something and, and then making profit in return. The other insurance policy might be the wealth that you've already accumulated. And that is through a process of exposing yourself to high upside outcomes that don't result on like chronic long-term inputs like a steady income. And then finally, I think one of the things that people really value if they're terrified of the entrepreneurship path is actually the career cachet that you build up by becoming an entrepreneur. In fact, most entrepreneurs that we speak to say they failed with their first few business ventures, they almost universally consider themselves to be more employable after those failures. And I find that to be a very interesting insurance policy too, the sorts of relationships you make while you're in that state of freedom and one-to-one authenticity rather than representing an organization tend to be really robust. They tend to put you in direct contact with your skill set and your ability to make money And then in the future, if you find yourself in a situation where you are looking for a job or a career, you feel much more empowered and secure in getting that deal done. One of the ways that I guess if I'm thinking about it, honestly, that I sleep well at night is just knowing that I can make money whenever I want. And that's kind of like a a weird thing that probably a lot of people listening to this show share with me, but not probably a lot of people in the world especially in America, I feel like, you know, I can wake up, I can fire up the old Craigslist machine. I can fire up the old WordPress machine. I can fire up the Twitter machine. I mean, there's just a number of different cash registers at my disposal that I feel like I can make money from today if I had to. Well, hopefully, and if people have any uncertainty about this, this show can serve as a live testament 
to the, that ability is something that can be developed. Me and you, we didn't always feel like that. You know, in fact, in, in the book, I wrote this vignette of, I was trying to relate this process of entrepreneurship as it's actually a know-how. Like it's something at a certain point, you can just do it because you've practiced long enough. And if you haven't practiced long enough, you can't do it. I mean, I've seen this in people that are just getting started out and people that we've worked with on our team. There is a long, long learning curve to getting it in your bones that you can actually do this stuff. And I would relate it to something like learning a complex sporting skill. You know, we talked about recently, I'll bring it up again, that I'm trying to find a way to shoot a 72 on 18 holes of golf. And there was a time three or four years ago, had you said I would do that, it would it'd be this mystical, unbelievable achievement. But if you practice a lot and you break it down and you realize that if other people can do it, it's also something that you can ultimately model, but that it's so complex that it's not one piece of information, one act or one moment that's going to mean you shoot that 72. In fact, if you go out with that mindset, it's like today's going to be my lucky day or you're going to be having a lot of unlucky days. And it's the same deal with the business. I guarantee you, and this is part of what the thousand day principle tries to posit, that if you spend a thousand days with this practice day in and day out, there's going to be a day when you wake up someday and you're like, holy shit, I can do it. One thing you didn't mention in there, though, Dan, is the sacrifice that you're going to have to make. Because it's not always clear, you know, and you might find yourself in the middle of it thinking like, why didn't anybody tell me I was going to have to give this up? Or why didn't anybody tell me I was going to be feeling like this? And it's kind of the same thing with your golf game, Dan. I think at nearly 40 years old, you can shoot a 72. There's nothing limiting in your your physicality, but uh, certainly, my friend... You do not have a family. For me, starting where I am, to shoot a 72, I would have to get a divorce. <laughs> Fair enough. All right, boss man. So this final script we were talking about was this turn on, tune in, drop out. And you know, like all of these strategies, there's so much positive to learn from them and then so much to use to critique our own mindsets, strategies, and timelines to make them more robust. The one thing I think we would encourage from this thousand day principle mindset, that if you're gonna drop out, make sure that it's relevant to your enterprises. At the very minimum, we're talking about inspiration and relationships, but ideally it would be a great deal more than simply lifestyle concerns, but why not? Given you're clever enough to find a great lifestyle arbitrage, can you not find a way to advance your business interests as well as your enterprising skill set and spirit. All right, boss man. So that's the conclusion to this section. Thanks to everybody for tolerating us, just chewing the fat on some concepts that interest us because we do believe, you know, at the end of the day, game selection, strategy selection, and the resulting mindsets and timelines that, you know, especially the timelines that you're going to be subjected to, they're critical. If you've got thoughts for us on this topic specifically, email them over to me at dan at tropicalmba.com. We're going to continue to crack away at that book. Before we go, we got some calls and emails that we received in response to last week's call for y'all to send us your COVID stories. And we got some fantastic ones. Again, pick up your phone, hit that voicemail app or voice recorder and email me your COVID story, Dan at tropicalmba.com. We'd love to just take a listen to hear where you're all at in the world. And that call was taken up this week by Lucas and uh, certainly brought a smile to our face to hear Lucas's story. Let's play it. Hey, and hey, Dan. Thanks so much for the uh, po- latest podcast. In fact, is, uh, this Lucas here calling you from Tangier, Morocco, and I think this is a perfect moment to describe my existence right now. Are you hearing my son? He's four years old. Talking about spaceships. This has been happening since March. The interruptions. He is not wearing any clothes, and he is in my office right now. 
astronauts can take off their clothes in the spaceships. That's true. Yeah, this has been my life, man, since March. I got locked down here in uh, Tangier, where I run a little travel company, uh, Journey Beyond Travel. We're in the travel industry, so it hit us really hard. But that's a nice thing about being in Morocco. It's one of the places that we don't talk about too much uh, around the D.C. or really in any of the forums. You know, everyone's, you know, tiling this or finding pockets around the U.S. or something like that. Uh, Eastern Europe or Portugal sometimes. But uh, yeah, here, here, you know, we find a really nice kind of balance of living, which means that when something like uh, COVID did happen, uh, we're able to quickly kind of reduce budgets very easily and, uh, you know, live very well off, you know, two, three thousand dollars a month. But in the meantime, you know, trying to get any work done without any child care, cleaning care help of any sort, uh, that's tough. You put in the hours early in the morning. Uh, for me, that's about 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, then it's all day with the kids. And then after they go to bed, if I have any energy left, you know, I, I try to get, you know, a phone call or two done or maybe a sift through some emails or something like that. But hey, it's not what we signed up for. <laughs> Let's just say that. But yeah, it is uh, challenging, I think. Like it is for everybody. It's challenging for everybody in different ways. But thank you guys again. Uh, awesome pod. Happy to be part of the DC. Uh, that's one thing I did do during COVID, actually, which was great. I finally joined the DC, which is cool because I've been listening to you guys for years, man, at least two, two, maybe three years. That is one super positive thing that did come out of the coronavirus so far. So thank you again, guys. Ciao. Lucas, I can relate to you. Very strong story. I appreciate <laughs> the call. Very strong. Especially the part where uh, your son doesn't <laughs> wear any clothes. This is a constant struggle in my house. <laughs> Not my problem. Respect, Lucas. Glad the show can give you some sense of solidarity with other entrepreneurs. And it's good to see you join in the DC as well. Of course, Ian, last week we talked a little bit about the fact that we haven't addressed the recent political issues revolving race in the United States. We got an awesome call in response to that from listener Phil Harris. Let's play it. Hi, Dan and Ian. It's Phil Harris from the band Shimokita Bam Bam. I'm a longtime listener of the podcast. In a previous life, I taught English in Japan for two years. After that, I worked for a bank in Japan for seven years. These days, I'm a 51-year-old African-American male with a day job in the financial industry in Boston. I like to think I'm not quite the proverbial dentist you've mentioned in previous episodes, but I do have a wife and daughter and a corporate day job. My creative outlet is making music in both English and Japanese and in dealing with the challenges of being an independent musician. I decided to call in response to your comments in episode 559 about Black Lives Matter. Your rationale for not talking about BLM is that Tropical MBA is not a political show and therefore you don't want to handle political topics. And I have to say, something doesn't quite feel right about that answer. For example, you have no problem talking about the lack of women entrepreneurs or how few women listen to your show. I mean, it's a point of pride for you when you talk about how much people make and you do so without flinching. Now, in this same episode, 559, you talk about how rents in New York and other cities are getting cheaper and how this is an opportunity for a budding entrepreneur on the sidelines to get involved in the game of business. Now, I would like to point out that large numbers of black people have been on the sidelines of American life for a long time. And it feels like now, finally, the rest of America is waking up to this fact. So perhaps black entrepreneurs will get a chance to participate fairly. At the very least, this seems like an opportunity for your listeners to engage with black people who have traditionally been underserved. So black people, they're your potential customers, potential partners, potential employees, potential angel investment opportunities. America is changing, and it's one more factor an astute entrepreneur needs to be cognizant of. So please don't get squeamish on me now. I feel that this topic is just as important as how much money do you, know, you make, how much money do your, your listeners make. You don't have to get political. I'm sure many of your listeners of color, like myself, have many stories that they can share about experiences with racism or any country for that matter. For us, it's just a fact of life. So Dan, Ian, please keep up the good work. I hope I'll have a chance to meet you and the other members of the Dynamite Circle in Bangkok or some other city 
So I love listening and I'll continue to. And thanks a lot. Shout out, Phil. Uh, appreciate those thoughts. Certainly very compelling. Also received uh, some thoughts from the other side of the aisle that maybe we should take even more measures to, to stay out of political issues. Ian, why don't you read uh, this response? Hey, Dan and Ian, thank you for the singleness of purpose comment on the latest podcast. I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous vet of over 30 years, and I know the inclusive and embracing power of that principle. People of all types feel welcome in the rooms because of it. This crucially gives them the opportunity not to die, which is an underrated achievement. But more subtly, it gives people of all opinions the opportunity to rub up against each other and realize that maybe, just maybe, the other is not to be demonized and feared. The other becomes just another dad like me. Another person struggling with everyday problems just like me. Empathy and genuine human kindness grow without even trying. Entrepreneurs and business owners do the same thing. We meet on the field of commerce with all comers. The narrow focus of a commercial transaction is a blessing. It gives the two parties the ability to join briefly in a common cause, a transaction. With luck, it happens again. All of a sudden, we see the other person as real, like ourselves. This builds human bonds and communities that are real, because they are organic, bottom-up. Or in AA jargon, simply, just one drunk talking to another. (laughs) Well, I got to say, we've received so many wonderful and thoughtful comments for the listenership. We appreciate the challenge from the listenership as well as the inspiration to think along these lines. So very cool. Shout out to everybody who uh, sent us a COVID story at dan at tropicalmba.com. Shout out and thanks in advance to everybody who's going to give us feedback on some of these alternate wealth strategies we talked about today. This pod, this community is an ongoing conversation. We appreciate your input as always. And boss man, I appreciated your input here today. That is it for this week. I got to hit the road. My vacation's over, but I'm looking forward to being back in Austin and doing some amazing things with our team, their business, and this community in the month of September. That's it, boss man. I'll see you soon, and we'll see you all next week. And a big thanks to Smash Digital for sponsoring the show. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.